everyone, this is Emma Dale, Community Editor of Central Michigan Life, and welcome to this edition of Past Deadline, a podcast that goes beyond the headlines and behind the scenes with our staff. Today we are discussing the shooting that took place March 2nd in Campbell Hall. After police say James Eric Davis Jr. shot and killed his parents, James Davis Sr. and Diva Davis in his room on the fourth floor of Campbell Hall, Central Michigan University's campus was put on lockdown for several hours. While students and faculty stayed put in their classrooms, residence halls, and houses, staff of Central Michigan Life was out on campus reporting on it. Today, I'm talking with three of our staff members about what it was like covering the double homicide and 15-hour manhunt. Jordan Hermony is the editor-in-chief, Mitchell Kokoka is the assistant community editor, and Evan Sosella is the university editor. Thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, no problem. Thanks Thank for you. having us. So first, can you tell me about where you were when you found out about the shooting and kind of what your first action was? Um, I was in my apartment. I think it was, I can't remember the exact time. It was so it would have been like around 9 o'clock, when, around the time when the first uh, central alert went, went around. Um, I was getting ready because on Friday I have class at noon, so I was probably going to stop by the CM Life office a couple, a couple hours and head to class. And I was actually out of the room when the central alert um, <clears throat> um, first went around. But I think just like a couple minutes after that, um, Emma uh, actually called me on my cell phone and told me there were shots fired on Campbell. I think like immediately after that, I like got ready and headed over there. Um, I know that I I also got the call from the central alert. I was um, laying in bed playing Animal Crossing, and <laughs> I suddenly got the central alert, and I was on my feet getting dressed uh, two or three seconds later on the phone with our director of student publications, David Clark. Um, and I, yeah, no, I think Mitchell and I, we spent most of that Friday... Mm-hmm. on the street um, from literally when that first alert was sent out to um, the final press conference of that day. And then even later, we all had went home that night, and I think everybody installed a police scanner on their phone to listen mm-hmm. and, and had their phones on all night. So we were pretty much sun up to sundown until about 12, 15 a.m. the next morning slash night. Uh, on the ground and working. Yeah, for me, I missed the initial uh, central alert. Uh, I was awakened by another phone call. That Friday for me, I was supposed to travel back home. I live in Saginaw, so I was supposed to go back home, and then I got a phone call from a coworker, and I immediately dropped everything. Uh, you can just say Emma. It's okay. <laughs> I think I most woke of us, everyone up. <laughs> I think most of us got phone calls from Emma, um, and those who didn't were already pretty much on the scene. <laughs> yeah, so I got a phone call from Emma, and uh, I immediately you know grabbed my backpack, uh, my notepad, pen, pencil, and I just drove over to the towers and was staying out there in the cold for a couple hours. Didn't have a jacket really. My phone was dying. Um, but I was just on the scene, uh, attended a couple of press conferences, and then the rest of the day I was in the office as, like, I guess the hub man trying to compile all the stories and make sure they get online to make sure uh, the community gets updated on the information that they needed. So it was a pretty long day for me as well. Okay, so go through that day with me. I guess you guys kind of already said it, but um, while you guys were out reporting the 
suspected shooter was still at large. So were you guys ever scared being out on the streets um, or worried? Um, I would never use the word scared. I don't think at any point in time I was ever worried for my own personal safety, whether that was driven by the fact of just instead of being scared, I had more of this need to uh, get people the news, get people uh, informed of what was going on around campus. Um, so I guess to rephrase it then, I was never really scared for myself, more for like other people, because knowing that we had such a big job to do, um, if we weren't going to be the people out there kind of uh, keeping people informed, uh, keeping people safe, um, then it could be worse. So um, more than anything, I think at the end of the day or about around four o'clock, I was just tired more than anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I wasn't, I would not, wouldn't necessarily say I was scared, but I was tense all day, kind of like anxious to learn more, both from the police officers and because there was like a good period of like an hour or two, like immediately after, like when we arrived on the scene, when we really didn't know anything. Right. Like they were, they had locked down Campbell Hall, the entire towers actually, and police were just arriving on the scene en masse. Um, but they couldn't couldn't tell us anything. Yeah, for me, I mean, I wasn't really scared as the day progressed, but at the start, I was, I guess, kind of worried. Uh, obviously, you don't think that's going to happen to your campus. And then when the news came out that uh, two people were deceased, and you had the continual updates throughout the day that the suspect was still at large and he could be armed and dangerous, um, and knowing how small this community is, it kind of puts a little bit of fear. Um, for us student journalists, this is something we we talk about in classes, but we never have to actually go out there on the scene, and we never think we actually would um, this early in our career. So it was really a, a really brave moment. I was proud of to work with everybody, and that kind of helped me got through the day. It's just seeing our coworkers and, and seeing you know what we were able to do and, and get the information out to everybody. It was really cool to see. And I know. Uh a portion of the anxiety was kind of relieved um, when it was confirmed who the two fatalities were. I think mm -hmm. initially what did set a lot of people off was uh, the ambiguity of saying that there were two fatalities. Uh, Towers is, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it one of the biggest, like the most amount of people live in that residential yeah. complex? Seven, seven residents halls and Right. Towers. So, I mean, I have a number of friends who are RAs there who live in that complex. And when you initially hear that, you know, shots were fired, you're worried for those people in that moment. And then when you hear two people were confirmed dead, um, ambiguity and sort of um, just a lack of information can make you think the worst. Mm -hmm. So once that was kind of dispelled uh, a little later in the afternoon when it was confirmed that it was a domestic dispute between a son and his parents. Um, selfishly, I was almost kind of relieved because that meant that it was somewhat of an, uh, not an isolated, but a contained incident mm -hmm. at least. So a lot of people have thanked CM Life for the thorough coverage that we had throughout the day. Um, did it feel like you guys were getting as much information out as you could? Um, so I was, if uh, anybody listening did keep up with the day's coverage, I was responsible um, for a lot 
I think all actually of the Facebook Live updates, the the Twitter updates. Um, I think our biggest thing wasn't that we weren't getting out as much information as we could, but um, having to deal with uh, the blessing and the curse that is the internet, um, where people would be commenting on our videos saying, um, oh, like your your information isn't correct. Um, it wasn't two dead, it was four dead, or your information isn't correct. Um, he shot these people, not his parents or something like that. And um, people were getting information from other sources. Some of it did end up being correct later in the day. I know I did see people um, online saying that Davis Jr. did shoot um, Diva and Davis Sr. Um, earlier in the day before police had confirmed that to us. Um, but as a news organization, we can't run off of internet comments. Uh, we can't run off of uh, Snapchat stories or Twitter uh, posts. We have to go off of what's confirmed to us. And I think that that was probably one of my most frustrating moments was um, reading through online postings and seeing people saying that we weren't reporting the full story when our hands are kind of tied in a sense. We can only report what is confirmed to us. Um, and just because another news organization posts that something is true um, doesn't necessarily mean it is. I mean, take for example, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Fox Detroit downstate, but at one point somebody was uh, posting that there was a shooter at CMU and they pulled up the Carnegie Mellon University school map um, and was pointing to a map that wasn't even related to us saying that, you know, oh, the shooting happened here. That's like thousands of miles away. The yeah. shooting did not happen there. <laughs> so you run into a kind of bind like that. And I think that was my most frustrating uh, experience out of all of that was wanting to keep people informed while also kind of wanting to break journalistic integrity and being like, please stop spreading things that you yeah. heard through your friends, cousins, sisters, mothers, aunt on social media. <laughs> it's probably not true. So. Mitchell, Evan, anything to add to that? Yeah, it was just what Jordan said, I think was, uh, she had it correct. Um, we basically had two sources of information here, um, the police, and university communications. Um, we wanted to report what they told us um, because those are the two agencies that uh, were on the scene and would have the most information that was accurate and we could confirm. Um, I know for the throughout the day, again, there was a 15-hour manhunt and there was more than 100 police officers from uh, local, state, federal agencies here and they were trying to do the best they can to to catch the suspect um, so if you considered that and um, there was maybe some times where we felt we weren't giving getting as much information out there as we could have but you have to take into that consideration um, they were trying to update us as much as they could there was two press conferences the day of uh, the shooting, and then there was one after, so there was three press conferences in total. Um, so communication-wise, we were trying to, you know, get information from the police and from the university, and we tried to <clears throat> give that information to our readers and our audience as soon as possible. And, but 
But at the end of the day, um, the information we want to provide, we want to make sure it is accurate and correct, and um, we earn that trust from our readers. No news staff is ever prepared for a breaking news story like this. What do you guys think went well, and why do you think it did? And what advice would you give to other student journalists about reporting breaking news? Um, I think my biggest thing would be always keep your computer with you and handy. Uh, that was one of the biggest things uh, I think that I misstepped on was not having my laptop with me. Um, a lot of, actually everything that I had to do, I either had to do through my own phone, um, which some of our, uh, the service that we use to upload articles isn't accessible via phone. So that was a little frustrating. What is it? It would either be I'd have to run all the way back from wherever I was to uh, the, our offices in Moore Hall or uh, co-opt. I know I took Evan's computer a couple of times <laughs> to look something up or, or shoot off an email. Um, but yeah, no, you, like you said, you can't ever really be prepared for something like this. So I think just the biggest thing, the most important thing is being able to think on your feet and being able to be adaptable to whatever is going to get thrown at you. Um, it's hard enough to kind of think straight um, when you're swept up in the moment of, oh my gosh, I never thought like something like this would happen. Um, but just kind of taking those two or three minutes to calm yourself and kind of make a mental checklist as to like, okay, what is the most important thing that we're looking at? What uh, what questions need to be answered immediately and then going about it in the most effective way to inform the people who have their eyes on you because I believe at one point we had everybody from local townsfolk to like CNN and MSNBC like on us so um, it's just making sure that people stay informed and making sure that you have the tools to do so I guess would be my biggest takeaway from that. I think uh, delegating kind of like the workload and just double being able to like ensure that you have the right people doing the right job is can kind of make or break situations like this because I remember I spent probably four or five hours since from nine o'clock to about two or three just on my feet I if not in front of Campbell um, it was Mackenzie Brockman our uh, uh, staff photographer and I um, following the police officers as they search houses downtown. And this entire, that entire time, Evan and Jordan were in the office. Uh, my phone died pretty early into the day because it just, I, I had not thought to charge it that morning. Um, and so Mackenzie and I had to like share a phone whenever we had to contact the office, whenever we needed anything like that. And yeah, it's just not nice to know that you have the right people in the right place always. And like Jordan said, making stuff up on the fly, kind of being able to like plan, kind of make make plans um, quickly and carry them out effectively. I, I remember uh, one of the first things we did in the day um, when we were all in front of Campbell Hall, it was a uh, photo editor, Cody Scanlon, Jordan, Mackenzie, and I, we met up uh, right outside of Campbell Hall and we just delegated like who's doing what um what's the procedure yeah i know that was that was actually pretty quickly decided on it was more mm -hmm. like we got together and was like all right you two over there yeah. us two over there mm -hmm. 
And we immediately started a group chat, and it was a rapid fire of, uh, oh, hey, this is a thing, and then putting it in the group chat and being like, cool, who want, uh, I'll post this on Twitter, you post it on Facebook, make sure that we have like mm-hmm. similar things going out. Oh, did you see this posted by you know the Department of Public Safety locally? Cool, let's get... Uh, let's keep our eye on that. Let's you know keep things going. So um, it was a lot of work kind of making sure that you had all the proper channels open on your phone and, mm-hmm. and making sure that you weren't perpetuating or spreading misinformation, but definitely worth it in the end. So Yeah, for the most part, I thought we did a pretty good job of covering <clears throat> this event the day of. Um, mainly because we used social media when we did our first initial posts. Uh, we saw that we would have a large set of eyes and a huge audience that's going to follow our coverage for the story. So we tried to uh, make sure that we got as many social posts out as we could. Uh, tweets, I thought Jordan did a great job with uh, Facebook Live updates. Um, and people seemed to watch those and and that was a good way for them to ask their own specific questions and see if Jordan could answer them. Um, basically when I was in the office, which I was for most of the afternoon, again, I was just looking at different social media sites, usually for updates, trying to offer our own tweets, own Facebook posts, own, uh, Facebook galleries. We had, we wrote some stories, but I thought we really covered this because of our social media presence. And it was like that throughout really the whole day. Um, we wrote a few stories, but we were constantly posting to Facebook, constantly tweeting, doing videos, um, even just quick, simple tweets at the end of the day about late updates. I think the university announced the names of uh, the people who were killed around 6 o'clock, so we were immediately there. Um, and it was kind of like that throughout. And even when they uh, captured the suspect that, like, about it was after midnight on March 3rd um, we were on it social media post so um, that's the advice for, for uh, student journalists I would say is to use social media this is uh, 2018 the platforms are here yeah I think it's actually really interesting when I hear people say that they don't have like a Twitter or that they're not like Facebook savvy I mean I don't know I don't use Facebook personally a whole lot but in this day and age, it's definitely just like a part of your tool belt as a reporter, as a photographer, as basically mm-hmm. anybody looking to grow or like get information. Mm-hmm. Twitter, Facebook, um, I'm trying to even think. It's really all you need. Twitter and Facebook, that's what we were really utilizing. Yeah. Um, we put that YouTube video up. What was that the day of or was it the day after? Yeah, I think we did a recap video um, that we had worked on for most of the day on the second and then posted the third, I believe, but I could be wrong on that. Um, But yeah, no. I think one of the things too is we had to be creative when we didn't have a lot of information. Um, At the end of the day, Friday, uh, Jordan did a recap video of like everything we knew so far around it was about seven o'clock. I think that was important uh, to get out there. And about five hours later, the suspect, Davis Jr., was uh, captured. But, um, you know, that video I thought was important, kind of wrapping up our entire day. And um, 
Yeah. And yeah, it's important to have people give people a reference to go back to. I mean, it's easy to get swept up in still perpetuating things that were disproven hours ago or um, say one thing that kind of cropped up on social media when another thing was proven to be true. So it's also pretty important to make sure that you have a way for readers to get a, a comprehensive update. And so after the day was over on Friday, how did you all feel? What were the thoughts and emotions kind of running through you? <laughs> I think definitely tired was the first mm-hmm. the first thing that popped in my head. I think I immediately went home after we decided to call it a day. Um, I don't even think I made dinner. I think I just, like, went and laid down on my bed and turned on the police scanner and kind of nodded off and then then woke up a couple hours later to the phone call that said that like, oh hey, Davis was caught and then was immediately back on my feet like running upstairs, grabbing my laptop, making sure that we were posting on social media. So even like out of a dead sleep, my brain was like, nope, you gotta keep doing this news thing, so. Um, I more or less the same. I was incredibly tired. Um, I, th- I, unfortunately, I, I, I was asleep when the Davis was caught, but I, I woke up like just like a couple of hours after afterwards, and just like immediately went back into like full force like work mode. Yeah, I was extremely tired. Um, even after we had the alert that uh, Davis was captured, I mean, I didn't much sleep at all still because I knew there was going to be an aftermath here and um, I wanted to be up early. We had a lot of other media here that that stayed overnight covering the story and I wanted to be sure that um, I didn't miss anything or that CM Life didn't miss anything so I didn't get much sleep. Um, I was relieved after the uh, alert went out that he was uh, in custody. It was really strange seeing Mount Pleasant on a Friday night with just helicopters flying over and um, just the, the type of scene that was it was just I, I can remember just you know driving by Friday night Campbell Hall and seeing you know all the trucks and all the cars there and then coming back the Saturday morning and just seeing that entire West Campus Drive was just empty again it was a complete 180 and um, that was really my relief like okay now I can see that this is kind of moved on, now it's time to really tackle the aftermath. No one really prepares you for that kind of like bone weariness like the next day of you're tired but you know that you just have to keep going because the story is not done yet just because the guy is in custody. You have uh, so many other things to pursue, especially as more information comes forward and you're kind of fighting with yourself of like, I want to take a nap, but this needs to happen first. (laughs) Moving forward, how do you decide what stories to pursue in the aftermath of this event? I think it starts with time relevance. Um, In the days, uh, this is not comparable at all, but in the days after 9-11, the New York Times uh, drew it down to like three, there were three ways that they wanted to pursue stories. Um, I believe it was people, um, policy, policy, and then progress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, policy, progress was kind of what we modeled our own approach after. 
um, immediately uh, the following days, the following editions, we had um, articles out about uh, the Davis parents, who they were as parents, what uh, their other two children thought of them as uh, how they wanted to be remembered. Um, students who lived in Campbell Hall, their reactions to the day, um, parents picking up their children, just really focusing on those directly impacted by the day's events. Um, policy, I know moving forward, we've already started reaching out to like the hospital to figure out how Davis Jr. Uh, somehow escaped following um, being placed there by uh, CMU police. Um, we're looking at lockdown policies. We're looking at training for professors and, and students moving forward. Um, and then progress comes as we start getting back our uh, freedom of information requests from police detailing um, how did this all occur and, and what, are, what steps are we taking as a university and a community to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Yeah, I think for the follow-up, the aftermath uh, was really that Saturday, March 3rd, for me. Um, after really that last press conference, there were still stories that we had to tell. I mean, you know, that Friday was such, it's really a tragic day for everybody. Um, I mean, two people died on this campus, and whether you're here or not, that's, you know, sad and tragic. And, uh, but, you know, you kind of look around and, and see if there's any stories you can do. Maybe there's a little positivity behind here. And I saw that the uh, uh, couple students were gonna buy <clears throat> donuts and coffee for the police that were out on the manhunt for 15 hours. And they were uh, cops and donuts and the interfraternity Interfraternity Council gave that away for free. And um, so that, that was just one story we did. Uh, we saw that the counseling center was directing donations and gifts to, um, or that donations and gifts were being directed to the counseling center. Uh, and then President George Ross made some remarks. You know, there was that day stories that were out that we had to pursue and, you know, spring break, uh, Davis was arraigned in court. We did a story on that. Now it's kind of just seeing um, what the stories Jordan mentioned and seeing how we can, you know, uh, accurately uh, follow up on this because this is a huge story and there's still a lot of uh, questions that need to be answered. It's kind of going over what Jordan said. Um, around um, the end of spring break, I attended a um, uh, Society of Professional Journalists Conference in Pittsburgh, and I attended a session on covering trauma. And um, one of the presenters actually went over a model of approaching journalism that's very similar to the three-step, kind of like three... Um, the 3P process. The 3P process that the New York Times did, only it's, it's a little bit different. It's um, there's, th there's three types of stories you can do on covering trauma. There's news... Uh, context and recovery, news being just basic facts. This is what happened. Um, this is what's happening, and, which is what we pretty, which is the most common form. That's mostly what we put out when um, the manhunt for Davis Jr. was still going on. Um, context and recovery are again kind of, kind of just um, focus more on policy. 
Um, but also, when you look at context from a news perspective, that means what does an event like this mean um, to the community at large? Like, what does a shooting on a campus mean, especially um, Central Michigan University, where nothing like this has ever really happened before? And there was kind of a fear um, that's there was kind of a stigma around it. Um, pe- people saying like, "Oh, don't make this about gun control. It's not. It's not an active shooter." Um, like school shooting, the the way people think, usually typically, usually like uh, think school shootings of like think of them of it was a domestic situation that still um, caused a lot of pain, but didn't quite um, pose the amount the amount of danger um, to the campus that it could have, um, and so things like that. What does it mean on campus? What does it mean? Uh, what does something like mean in the current culture around surrounding, uh, again, like going school shootings, like Parkland was just weeks ago. And we had actually just, Evan Shella had written a story on what is CMU's policy when dealing with active shooter situations that was published the Monday before the Friday of the actual shooting. And recovery is just how, just kind of afterwards in the aftermath how um, how did this affect people, and how does this affect um, change both on an individual level and in regards to uh, policy you know, going forward? Well, thank you guys for talking to me and being here today. That's it for this edition of Past Deadline, a podcast produced by Central Michigan Life. I'd like to thank my guests and our producer, Grant Palmatier. We would like to know what you think about these topics. Email me at news at cm-life.com with your thoughts. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.